Hey, James. Steven, welcome. Welcome to Question of the Day. Thank you very much. You, uh, but the question is, do you have an answer of the day? I have a little bit of an answer to wait, the question of the day. Oh, wait. Uh, but I own the question. Give me, give me your answer first, and I'll see if I can guess the question that you have. Oh, I like that. It's like it's Jeopardy, like Jeopardy of question, question of the, of the day. day. It's the Jeopardy of the day. Um, first off, how are you doing? You good? Life's good? Wait, are you, is this a, a real I'm interruption or a mock interruption? No, like I'm... Uh, life I'm, is good. I'm curious. Life is good. All right, good. All right, I'm, now you can I'm ask work, I'm working on fun projects. Uh, I My family and I like each other fairly well at the moment. Are there moments where you don't really like each other so much? Sure. It's a family. Yeah. I guess that's true. There are tensions and issues and... But generally, that's uh, good. And those are, you know, those are the important things to me. I don't worry too much about the big, like, our nation. Do you? Yeah, no, never. Did you vote? I voted. I felt a little bit like a hypocrite. Who did you vote for? Why did you feel like a hypocrite first? Because um, I've written, you know, several times in the past about many elements of the electoral and governing processes uh, including the fact that you know voting is um, uh, I don't want to say an overvalued activity, but you know we think about it as this kind of moral uh, necessity, and um, if you don't do it, you're a bad person, and it's so important. And and the fact is that empirically, it's hard to make that argument. You know, one vote doesn't matter at all in just about any case. And there might be cases if you're voting for, you know, city council where a vote might decide it. But, you know, the, the irony of voting for important elections is the closer an election is in votes, the more likely it is to be settled by a court or a judge. So even then it's not the vote that's making it, although you could argue. But, but you know, um, the economist's view, and I'm not an economist, but I spend a lot of time with a lot of economists, so much so that people sometimes mistake me for an economist. But and the, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with, so <laughs> you're probably an average economist. If I were an average economist, if I were an average of the people I spend the most time with, I would also be a better-than-average golfer, and that's not the case. So maybe I need to uh, either get better at golf or spend... Well, you probably are getting better at golf, right? You know, I really... It's so... You there know, you go. Can I tell you what I most love about golf of all the things I love? And I know that there are a lot of people when they just hear the word golf, they puke. And I used to be one. Of, I, I was not a golf person growing up, didn't know anything about it. I would see it on TV on Sundays primarily, and I loved sports as a kid. Um, so I would look at it, and I know all the names of all those golfers from the 70s and 80s, whatever... And I would watch it because it was sports on TV, and I loved sports, but I thought, oh my God, what a ridiculous, ridiculous thing it is. It's just like the culture of it, thought. you know? Right, so I know that a lot of people still have that thought, but I've come to love it. And I'm not trying to convert anybody, and I'm not even trying to defend it. To golfism? Uh, right. <laughs> but of all the things that I personally love about golf now, I think number one is it is so exciting and challenging and difficult and frustrating, et cetera, et cetera, to work so hard to get better at something. Because, you know, by the time you're an adult, I mean, honestly, I could argue that by the time you're 30, most people aren't really engaged intensely in activities where they're deliberately trying to improve at something. That's so interesting. And often you think that the time to get great at something is youth because that's when you have more free time in your hands. But that might not necessarily be true given the demands of an eight to four school and then homework and so on, 
In fact, it might be more possible in adulthood to get good at something. I want to hear your answer, and I will guess the question, but maybe this episode, like, what do you think are the ingredients of improving at something to be, in order to even be great at it as an adult, whether it's golf or business or music or languages or whatever? Do you think it's possible with most of those things? So, short answer, yes. And I should say that I'm a big believer, not a 100% uh, embracer of, but a big believer in the school of improvement that's best known as the deliberate practice school, which was originated in large part by one guy, but there were, there's a series of researchers, academic researchers, a guy named Anders Ericsson, who's been a kind of, I would say, a personal or professional hero of mine for about 11 years now. I agree, and his book is <clears throat> brilliant that just came out. Yeah, Peak. his book is called Peak, which has a, a co-author named Robert Poole, who's a writer who I did not know before, and I thought it was really well-written as well, so it's a really good collaboration. But basically, yeah, so I do think, and we can talk about that more at length another time about you know what actually goes into deliberate practice and so on. But I will say this. Why, why don't we give, though, just like what are the four or five components? And, and the whole sure. notion is that you'll get better if you do deliberate practice. Right. So the, the, the kind of conventional wisdom that turns out to be wrong empirically is that doing something over and over necessarily makes you better at it, right? So you can make the argument that like experience leads to improvement. But there are a number of levels on which you can see that that's not quite true. So I'll give you a couple interesting examples from this book, Peak, by Anders Ericsson. The difference between London taxi drivers and London bus drivers. If you look at their brains with MRIs, using an MRI, which a, a neuroscientist from University College London, whose name escapes me, I want to say Sarah McGuire, forgive me if that's not right, which she did, a study. So it turns out that um, the act of driving a taxi in London and the act of driving a bus in London might seem to be not that different. And if you've been doing both for 30 years, presumably your brain would change about the same. But it turns out that the acts are really quite different because when you drive a taxi, you have to know how to get from anywhere to anywhere which requires not only learning what they call the knowledge with a capital K uh, in the beginning, which they study for two or three or four years, whatever it is, to get there, but then constantly keeping your information current, even with GPS, which they do, because GPS doesn't work all that great in London all the time, but also it's kind of a pride of how they do it there. Bus drivers, meanwhile, have a route. And you might get put on a different route once in a while, but even if you change routes every two weeks, for those two weeks, you have the route. Right. And so if you look at the brains of those two sets of people, taxi drivers versus bus drivers, turns out that the taxi driver's brains, the part that they say grows when you learn, is a lot bigger. Why? Because it's a difference between learning, or what you'd call, in this case, deliberate practice, and experience. There's a, there, sorry, go ahead. So, so in that case, would you say it's the case that if you're not improving, you're declining? There's no such thing as kind of steady uh, state? I, I don't know. I mean, here's an arena that gets where the stakes are a lot higher than in driving is medicine. So it turns out, according to the research of Anders Ericsson and his confederacy, it turns out that very often the doctor, let's say, who is at his or her best in terms of really figuring something out, whether it's diagnosing per se or otherwise, is never better than the day they get out of graduate school. Why? Because you're constantly being exposed to challenges, to tests, to experiences guided by people who know a lot more than you, you're learning, 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 learning. Then I become a general practitioner and people come to me with a headache. And I think, well, God, headache could be a hundred things. And I tell them to do one or two things, take some medicine, don't do this, do that, da, da, da. The feedback loop is really sloppy in that case. I don't know if they do what I tell them to do. I don't know if they actually got better 
if they don't come back, I have no idea if they got better or went to another doctor or died. I also don't know if maybe they would have gotten better on their own without anything that I prescribed to them to do. And so the feedback loop is loose like that, and it's very hard to learn and improve without good feedback. So you mentioned two things. One is you need kind of constant improvement or testing yourself somehow, uh, like the London cab drivers versus the bus drivers. And you also need a very tight feedback loop. It's all about the feedback. And, and it's hard to the- learn anything without great feedback. We'll dig even deeper into this question of the day right after this. Today's show is sponsored by Howl.fm, which by now you know is an awesome comedy network likened to being the Netflix for podcasts, brought to you by the same people that bring you all your favorite Earwolf shows, including this one, Question of the Day. With Howl Premium, you get exclusive access to a brand new Howl original miniseries called Dead Presidents. In this new show... Daniel O'Brien from Crack.com sets out to solve one of the greatest mysteries of our time, figuring out why certain American presidents appear on our cash, from the humble first president George Washington on the $1 bill to the controversial Andrew Jackson on the 20 for now. The stories behind the presidents on your money are way more surprising and way crazier than your high school history teacher ever could have imagined. With Howl Premium, you also get exclusive access to more than 120 hours of new Howl original miniseries and audio documentaries like The Complete Woman, Finding the Funny with the Sklar Brothers, and Fruit. You also gain access to more than 90 comedy albums, all the archives from WTF with Mark Maron, and every episode of every Earwolf show such as Comedy Bang Bang and How Did This Get Made. Get access to all this exclusive content on your iPhone, your Android phone, and on the web for only $4.99 a month. And with the promo code QOD, as in question of the day, you get a full month of free trial. To redeem your promo code, make sure you create your account on the web at howl.fm and enter code QOD at checkout. That's howl, H-O-W-L dot F-M. Use the promo code QOD for a one-month free trial of Howl Premium. The other component of Anders Ericsson's deliberate practice is having some sort of mentor or teacher. Big time. And, and his because argument, they, they give you the feedback loop. Right, and it's not only the feedback loop, but here's a, another part of his argument that I find very compelling, which is that if you look at basic human accomplishment right now in the year 2016, we are better at almost everything than we used to be 100 years ago. Here's an example. I discovered this recently. So the Olympics this year uh, are reintroducing golf. So golf was in the Olympics, I think. Oh, my God, golf. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) But I think you'll find maybe some value in this horrible golf story. So the modern Olympics relaunched in whatever, 1896, right? And I believe that golf was played in the first two or three. I think the first two of those Olympics. In the 1900 Olympics, so the second one, uh, where I know the winning scores, the gold medalist, the format was two... 18-hole rounds. So 18 holes is kind of the standard round of golf. And all the competitors, I think it was women also, but I know the male scores off the top of my head, par on a course, an 18-hole course, would typically be 72. And in golf, the lower your score, the better. So if you shoot under par, you might shoot a 69 or a 66 would be an amazing round, whatever. And if you're over par, you might be 73, 75, whatever. The winning scores, the gold medalist of the 1900 Olympics, who happened to play, he was the pro at the club that I happened to belong to. That's how I learned about this. His winning score for the gold medal in 1900 was 85 and an 82. 
Now, you can talk all you want about equipment changing, which is true, and equipment other things. fields being designed differently? Eh, not really. The courses weren't, aren't necessarily easier now. They're longer and probably harder. But uh, the fact is, is that, um, look, I could almost be an Olympic gold medalist if I had my current ability and was born 100. Now, now not really, because relative to everybody else, there'd still be people who are a lot better at me. But the point is that now, if you shoot an 85 and an 82 in consecutive rounds, you could barely get on a good high school team in a competitive area. That's how much we've improved in many, 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 many areas as a species. And the reason is because what you said about that's the role of the coach or the teacher is the coach or the teacher has spent their career learning the techniques, the strategies, mm. the mistakes of the past and can give to you in four hours what it would have taken a previous generation four years to learn. And that's another really important piece of coaching or teaching. So having a mentor... Yep. Continuous improvement, tight feedback loop. Are there any other components of uh, deliberate practice? One other that I would say that's really important and it seems a little bit like hair splitting, but I would argue that it's not. I think of it in terms of concentrating on technique versus outcome. Now, this differs a lot from domain to domain if you think about sports. What do you mean by, to give me an example of technique? Sure. So, playing music. Let's say I'm trying to learn a particular piece or a particular fingering or to increase my speed or to increase my uh, agility or to increase my in interpretation of reading or playing whatever it is. If I am constantly thinking about outcome, how does it sound to me right now, which is a very natural tendency, we're always assessing and judging ourselves Am I doing well at this thing? I have to go give a public speech. I have to go participate in a meeting. Am I doing well, right? If you're constantly concentrating on your outcome, it's very hard to assess your technique, whereas it's the technique and the refinement of the technique and the improving of the technique that is going to lead to better outcomes. But, but isn't the outcome part of the feedback loop? Yeah. Like, like let's say you're, you're at a musical performance. Your outcome is either going to be applause or not. Um, and that's going to depend on how good your technique is. I guess when I talk about outcome, I'm not talking about some uh, objective assessment of how you did. Let's take it golf, okay? For instance, let's say I go out tomorrow and I shoot an 84, which for me is really good. For a pro golfer, you know, that'd be a horrible, horrible, horrible day. But for me, that would be a very, very good day. So I could say, you know what? I was awesome yesterday. And that means that whatever I did... I should do that again every time. What did I do? Well, I had a big breakfast. Hmm. And um, I was thinking about this on the drive up and da-da-da-da-da. And, and so I could do all those same things the next time and shoot a 98. I'd say, wait a minute, what happened? Well, what happened is what made me good on that day may have been a little bit of luck, may have been good weather, da-da-da. But what happened is my technique was working well. Well, it's the technique that you need to focus on to improve, which I, means that I need to look at the swing, I need to look at speed, I need to look at whether I stretch, da 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 and so on. So in everything you do, whether it's surgery or cooking or making a podcast, whatever, if you don't focus on your technique and gradually inch by inch isolate the things you're not doing well and try to work on them very deliberately to improve them, you're just not going to get better. I think adding to that a little bit, I think why in, let's say, a game like chess, they always advise to study your your losing games. Because I think it's easier to focus on technique when you study a loss. 
So, for instance, you you described your uh, good day of golf, and you attributed all these false things to having a good day. You would never have done that. You actually probably would have focused more on technique in your analysis if you had had a bad day. So, I think it's easier to focus on technique when your outcome was poor, and you kind of kickstart the feedback loop. I still think it's part of the feedback loop. It's just easier to look at it when the feedback was bad. Mm, that is a really interesting point. I like that point. I'm gonna. I'm I'm gonna steal that. So so you're trying to get better at golf, where which is very measurable. Just like some things like uh, like games are very measurable. Mm-hmm. Uh, sports, uh, maybe some music, whether you can play something or not. What about something that's a little more nebulous, like writing? Yeah, it is definitely harder for a couple of reasons. One, you know, like there's so many writers out there who think they're good, but they're not. Well, and I, I might be one of them. And I would argue there are a lot of writer. There are a lot of people who write really, really, really well and have no success at all. Right. Because then you're getting into, look, and I should say again, every domain is so different. Surgery is different from radiog, you know. But it's measurable. Are our lives saved or not? Yeah, yeah, it's true, although there are complications. But no, it's a lot harder. I, I think of, you know, writing or something like, you know, being an entrepreneur, you know. there where are the, some where the feedback loop is very small. Yeah, and there are some obvious measures. Like, did the, the last five companies I start, did any of them succeed, or did they? You know, but again, but, but very, there are a lot. very slow feedback loop because that could be over a fifteen-year period. There are, and there are, and, and it's very hard to know the counterfactuals too. Like, I hired this person as the CEO after I, the founder, da da da. What would have happened if I had stayed on, or what would have happened if instead of the CEO route, I'd, I'd set up a different kind of structure? That's where these other pursuits, like sports and music, whatever. We can learn more from them is because they are so measurable. So what, what I would advise people is if you're in one of these areas that is harder to measure, look to the ones that are easier to measure for the guidance in terms of the strategies to actually improve, That like the ones that, that we've been talking about. You know, I never asked my question, but we kind of answered it in a roundabout really? way. Anyway, can I ask the – yeah. I'll tell you the question. This is from Pelly. Finally, we get to the question. <laughs> Pelly Monis or Moans, maybe it's at Pelly Moans M O N E S on Twitter, who wrote to us to say, "Why do people always believe compliments but think criticism is always wrong?" I found that to be a really compelling question, and we've ended up talking a lot about how you need to use not necessarily criticism but failure or lack of lack of successful technique to not improve as much as you want. You know, that's interesting because we didn't answer his question, but we found a way to use criticism to basically improve our lives and make the universe better. But let's on the next episode answer his question. It's a deal. Stay tuned. In mere seconds, you will hear a sneak peek of our next question of the day. But first... From the right, I'm Mark Har, And from the left, I'm Pete Har, And we're the hosts of Hard Nation. We're covering all the biggest stories this election season on Earwolf while talking to your very favorite politicians like Ted Cruz. May I have a little more his, time? Is his, it my turn to his talk? His face is getting Do I get very a chance close to, talk to my now? face. Hillary Clinton. To little girls out there who are trying to do things, just do it. You'll fail and a man will do it for you. Donald Trump. If I became president, I would bronze every immigrant child and I would attach them to naval ships. Listen to Hard Nation Today, America, on Earwolf, Howl, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. Get hard. And on the next episode of Question of the Day, same question channel, same question time, here it is. Pelimonis wrote to say, why do people always believe compliments? Not sure that's true. 
but I think criticism is always wrong. Okay, right. let me let me say, I think Pelly is perhaps overstating it. Yeah, because I, I don't know. I don't always... I Actually, a lot of people don't believe compliments. You know what? I, that's what I was going to say. I, I'm kind of the opposite. I don't believe any compliments. 